scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 5. And I shall read to you. Malachi, chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 5. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? It's not Esau, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Let us look to the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, once again for giving us a time and a place where we can worship you, Lord, in the beauty of holiness. Thank you, Father, for even this time that you have gathered your people around your word. Once again, we pray, be pleased even to open our ears and our eyes, that we may see, that we may hear your word, that we may even receive your word, Lord, in humbleness and in tenderness of heart, that you may bring forth much fruit for your glory. Pray for the preacher that you would use him as your instrument, as your mouthpiece, Lord, to declare to your people, Lord, the wonderful words of life. For we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now we are starting on a new series, or at least I'm starting on a new series on the book of Malachi, the last book that I've uh, completed. Finally, is the book of which book? Nehemiah. Hope you remember. Okay, now the book of Malachi is the last of the Old Testament books. And thereafter began the intertestament period or the 400 silent years. Now, Nehemiah is a short book. But it is the last message, the last revealed word of, of the Lord to his people before he speaks to his people again in his Son, our Lord and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Okay, first, verse 1 informs us that the author of the book is Malachi. He is aptly named by his parents as Malachi, which means the messenger of Jehovah God. Now, we do not know much about the prophet Malachi, who he, he is, where he was born, which town he lives, and the period of his ministry. Now, given the nature of the charges to the people of God in the book, which we will study in the weeks to come, God willing, and also according to Jewish tradition, Malachi was from the tribe of Zimbulan in the north. And he was a contemporary or a late contemporary of Nehemiah, the governor, that put his ministry maybe from 440 to 420 BC. 
Now I hope you remember who Lee Ma, the governor, was. I hope you can remember the times and the work which we have done previously. Because we have just concluded a series on the book of Nehemiah. Just to refresh our memory, Nehemiah is a cupbearer in the palace of the Persian king. He became a governor of the province of Judah. He was commissioned by the Lord himself to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem which has been lying in ruins for more than 170 years. Now, besides rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, Nehemiah also seek to rebuild the spiritual lives of the people, of the people of God, which has been lying in ruins for the longest time, even longer than the ruins of the walls of Jerusalem. You will see as we study the book of Nehemiah, that the prophet addresses the similar problems which Nehemiah seek to correct. Nehemiah is not alone in the work of rebuilding the spiritual lives of the people of God. He has, on one hand, Ezra the scribe, the teacher of God's word, and possibly Malachi the prophet, the preacher of God's word, to support his reformation to support his work of rebuilding the lives of the people of God of old. Dearly beloved, the word of God always supports and goes with the work of God. In the building of God's kingdom, in the directing and strengthening of his church, and in the reformation and revival of his work, The Word of God is always present and has to be present. And we see this in the revival of the kingdom of Judah under King Josiah around 6, maybe 20 or 630 BC. You see, the law of God was literally lost. The copy of God's Word was literally lost before the reign of the boy king, Josiah. And while renovating the temple grounds, they found the law of the Lord, they buried under the debris. Imagine your Bible buried under, not only under your pillow, but buried under your, your boxes. But now the law of the Lord was buried under the debris of the building. It had been lost for years. Literally lost for years. And when the law was read, read to the boy king, he was soft and he was tender to the word of God. And he humbled himself before the Lord. And he began to reform the kingdom according to the law of God which he had found, buried under the debris of the temple ground, with the prophets and priests supporting him. Like Lee Jeremiah, who had started his ministry then, plus maybe have a cut also. So this is something whereby, and the priest as well, is assisting the boy king in the reformation of the kingdom. Again, the word of God plays a predominant forefront role in the work of God. See, the word of God supports and directs King Josiah's work of reformation 
even though it's a short-lived reformation. But the reformation stayed the chastening hand of the Lord upon the backslidden nation for almost 40 to 50 years. The axe is about to chop on the roots. But because of the boy king Josiah and his attitude towards the will of God and how he followed the will of God, the Lord stayed his hand of chastening from the nation for about 40 to 50 years. Now coming to our present days, we continue to see the word of God supports and goes with the work of God. Now in the 1930s, the Chinese church in China and Nanyang, now known as Southeast Asia, was in a bad spiritual shape. Nominalism and worldliness were rampant in the church. You became an elder of the church because you are rich and you are a son of a pastor. But you may be unregenerate. But given your pedigree and your influence, you will be offered the highest seat available to a layman in the church. And worldliness, it was rampant then in the Chinese church. But by the good hand of the Lord, God raised up a body of pastors and preachers to teach the word and to preach the gospel. Pastors like Wang Mingtao and David Yang preached to their churches and hundreds in Bible conferences, especially to the China University Fellowship in his very, uh, in his uh, simple ways, form. And evangelists like Zhong Song and the battle band preached the gospel to thousands within and without the church. Although Zhong Song was an evangelist, he saw the importance of grounding his converts in the Word of God. And he taught through the Bible in month-long Bible Institute and a few places. One was in Singapore. Now, we may not agree with his theology or even his interpretation of Scripture, but he remains my hero. And we must give him credit for preaching the Gospel, for teaching the Word and reaching the world for Christ, especially to our Chinese forefathers with the gospel. And Zhong Song Legacy continues on in Singapore through the ministry of Qinglian Bible Seminary, a Chinese-based seminary which have trained hundreds, if not thousands, of Chinese pastors for Southeast Asia. And he begins her life in his month-long Bible seminars in Singapore during the 1930s and veteran missionaries who served in China before 1949, whom I had the privilege to meet, to meet when I was a, not, a, not a young boy, about judging age, when I went to OMF prayer meeting. It's wonderful to see all these veteran missionaries speaking of their, not as, of course their glorious day, but it's their exploits in China before 1949. Old ladies and old men then praying that God will open the doors of China again to the gospel. And they attest that the 1930s revival, whom some of them have went through, Western missionary going through, and a Chinese revival, 
They attest that the revival had prepared the Chinese church to survive the dark days of persecution from the 1950s, even all the way to the 1970s. It was reported that the 1930s pastors and evangelists who suffered persecution and were imprisoned for their faith stood firm and they survived spiritually with the bits and pieces of the Bible notes and the sermon preached in the 1930s revival. Hypothetically speaking, imagine I'm preaching now and this material was transcribed somewhere and maybe years later I was in prison and I got to read this little portion of sermon which I preached many years ago and I was kept alive spiritually in a sense by the very sermon which I preached. This is what happened to our Chinese brethren during the days of the persecution. And the Bible notes and the sermons of the 1930s revival continue to be the staple food for many Christian, Chinese Christian brethren till today. They have republished Jongsong Bible notes in Mandarin. I've yet to get hold of it because anyway, I cannot really read Chinese. So those who can, avail yourself to that. I think multi-volumes, Jongsong Bible notes, Again, we may, not disagree, we may not agree with theology, but I think it's a good reference Bible reading for all of us. And now in Malachi times, God continued to do His work through the teaching and the preaching of His Word. So this is the context in which this message was set upon. On one hand, there's a Reformation work going on by Nehemiah, on the other hand, God sent his messenger, Malachi, to support the work of the Reformation, okay, to reinforce the work of the Reformation under Nehemiah. Now the book called the book was called an oracle in our ESV version, but the more apt translation is burden, as used in the KJV and the NKJV. The original word means a weighty message or a judicial sentence. And the Wycliffe Bible Commentary have confirmed it. In short, this book is a book of charges or, judi or judicial sentences against the people of God of old. In fact, there are six, some say seven, I will stick to six, six charges against them in the book. And the people of God of old, they are given the opportunity, in a sense, to defend themselves. And interestingly and sadly, they answer each charge with a familiar Singlish uh, Sentence. And what is that familiar English sentence? Jay must learn this English. It's very useful. When someone tells you something, tell you, tell you that you are in fault, that you never do this and never do that, what we, will, what we always say is, Where God? Where God? And have, Where God? You then I'll say, Where God? So this is exactly what the people of God re reply to each of God's charges against them. We'll read, of course, in our 
Later we will read about one, but in the coming weeks, maybe coming months, we will look at each of them. And each time when the church was put before the people of God, they would to say, Where God? Now when the word of God speaks to our sin, it speaks to our heart, do we not also say in our heart, Where God? Or, we are not so bad after all. Ah. Don't think that I'm not so bad after all. And now the book is addressed to Israel, the people of God of old. Now it is really interesting to note that this is the only prophetical book that is addressed to all Israel. Whereas the other prophetical books were addressed either to the northern or to the southern kingdom. The people of God of old were no longer divided into two kingdoms. The northern tribes have joined the southern tribes to return to the promised land. Remember, Malachi possibly come from the tribe of Zembulun and way down in the New Testament, Anna the prophetess came from the tribe of Asher, also in the northern, belonging to the northern tribes. And it is no accident that the church is called the Israel of God in Galatians chapter 6, verse 16. We are called the Israel of God. It's not by accident or by shorthand because down to the ages, there's only one people of God. Israel of old and the new Israel of the New Testament. We are one people of God. What is the purpose of the book L? What is the message of the book of Malachi? There are many, there are at least three, four purposes. There are maybe more. The first one is to show the messiness of the people of God. Now the book shows how the people of God have messed up their life before Jehovah God. the people of God have been living a messy life before Jehovah God from the longest time. That is because of the render of sin in all of us. And when they warred against our spirit and we yielded to temptation, we disobeyed the Lord and we fell into perpetual backsliding and we sinned against the Lord. This was a sad commentary of the forefathers of return exiles some 170 years ago. We read in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 15 to verse 16, and I shall read to you. 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by His messengers, because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. Verse 16, but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose again his people, until there was no remedy. It is how sad, a sad commentary on the people of God of old. 
The Lord have compassion on them and on his dwelling place, which is the temple, the house of God. And he sent messengers. He sent Malachi's to them. Wave and wave up upon Malachi's address the nation, but they refuse to a point where God say there is no remedy. They had to be chastened. They had to be sent out from the land and into exile. That is how messy their life were before Jehovah God. Now did the return exiles, their great-grandchildren, learn their lesson? No, they did not. Throughout the last hundred years of their return to the land, they have been straying, they have been backsliding from the Lord. Yes, the exile has cleansed the nation from idolatry. From now onwards, we will never hear of them worshipping Baal or the golden calves. But their heart remains far, far away from the Lord. Their hearts remains far, far away from the Lord. They were leading a messy life before Jehovah God. And God willing, we shall look at some of the mess which they have created for themselves before the Lord in future. The second is to correct the messiness of the people of God. It is one thing to admonish a person in the Lord. It is quite another thing to build up the brethren, the person in the most holy faith. You see, we have the tendency to rebuke, to find fault with one another. Even according to scriptures, but we always leave out the instruction or instructing part. We never instruct our brethren to walk in the straight and narrow way that leads to eternal life. See, on one hand, the prophet Malachi points out the failings of the people of God, and he also shows them the way back to the Lord, which is important. And the word of God is given to us for that very purpose. Not only to tear down, but to build up. Not only to admonish, but to instruct. To hurt and also to heal. We read in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 to verse 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good word. This is what the this is the function of the will of God. For teaching, for admonishing, for correcting and for training. The full comprehensive package. It's not just to tear down, but to build up with the very will of God. Now the third purpose of the book is to point to the people of God, to look forward to the coming Messiah who will fix the messiness of the people of God. 
It is found in the concluding chapter of the book. The last revelation of God before the 400 silent years. It points them to the coming Messiah who will come to fix their messy lives and to judge the unbelieving world for their sin or unbelief. And that Messiah is none other than our Lord and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. He has come. He came to die and to pay for the penalty of our sins of His people in the first time. And He will come again to bring His people home and to judge the this wicked, sinful world. Now, no amount of resolution or reformation can fix our messy lives. Many years ago, I don't think it happens now. In our youth camp, we all, at the end of, at last night of the camp, we always have what we call a dedication night or consecration night. Sorry, it's called consecration night. Too long, I can't even remember the word. We have a special sermon preached on that very night. Then the preacher will call us to rededicate our life to God or consecrate our life to God. And we, will, and we are so resolved then you know, to consecrate our life to God. I tell myself when I reach home, I'll spend my time reading the Bible, no more TV, no more ball games. I'll just pray and read the Bible and witness to my friend. That's the night. Next day, of course, we check out of our youth camp and then we go home. First day, yes, I kept myself from the TV. I really read the Bible and I pray. Second day, third day, and the rest is history. Really history, way history. No longer can I even keep that resolution for a week. No, no human effort, no amount of resolution or even reformation. We think of the 16th century reformation, we think that it's a glorious day all the way. No, barely after the death of Calvin and Luther, the work come to a standstill again. In Holland, they had a call for a second reformation. In England, same thing. After the first generation died off, second generation had to start another reformation of the church. The church is always reforming. But Christ has come to fix our messy life. And God is doing that bit by bit, here a little and there a little. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. One day we will be like Christ. But God is changing us from glory to glory. A little, a little, here and there. Till we see Christ face to face by His Spirit. Now for the remaining time that we have, we shall look at the first charge today from verses 2 to 5. Now this is one of the most hard passages of scriptures to chew on. Verse 2 speaks of the electing love of God. I would like to quote from the Reformation Study Bible notes on verse 2. And I quote, 
God's electing love is sovereign and unconditional. God's love is manifested in covenant He initiates with His people. God's election of Jacob continued to have relevance for his dealings with Israel in the period of Malachi's ministry. Properly understood, God's love does not lead to a moral complacency, but to moral zeal. And quote, now that is clear and palatable, I think, to most of us. God's electing love is sovereign and it is unconditional. That's not based on our merits, for we have none. God's election, again, is sovereign and also unconditional. Now, verse 3 speaks of the reprobation of the unbeliever, represented by Esau. Here. Again, I'd like to quote from the Reformation Study Bible notes on verse 3. I quote Although the usage of the verb hate, which means to love less, in Genesis chapter 29, verse 31, the context suggests that here hate means active rejection, displeasure and disfavor, manifested in retributive justice. It is not merely that Esau and Edomites, representing the unbelieving world, suffers the absence of or lessening of blessing, but that he receives judgment. Unquote. We read also in Psalm 5, uh, chapter 5, verse 5 to verse 6. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hated all evildoers. You destroyed those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. It's just one of the many verses which God speaks of God's displeasure, or God's hatred for sinners as well as their sin. God detests, God abhors sinners and their sins. Now, election and reprobation, they are taught in scriptures. Even though it is most unpopular among the Christian people down through the ages. God's decree of election and reprobation is secret. Which persons are elect and which are reprobate will not be revealed before the judgment day. And it is doctrine, the doctrine of reprobation as well as election is not a tension, but it's rather a beautiful mystery which we will, in this lifetime, not be able to understand fully. See, when, um, when I go for my birthing photography session, some of you have seen my Facebook. They look very clear, right? They look unobstructed. But there's only 1% of all the photos that I took. 99% are obstructed. All the tweaks are there. You can barely see the image of the bird. Like, with all the tweaks. And, 
But you can make up that that one is an owl or that one is a hornbill. But you cannot see the details, no eyes, no feathers. You can make the outline. Because once a while, God have mercy on me. He let the bird flow out a bit so I can, we can see a bigger picture. But there may still be some leaves blocking it. We have no complete picture or complete understanding of the doctrines of God. If we have, we won't be sitting here. If you can understand the doctrine of the Trinity or the doctrine of election and reprobation, you can answer every objection, you'll be sitting here. You will join Lucifer because you want to be the Most High God yourself. We will never understand. We can never see the full picture. Yes, God has given us a bare outline and we have to accept this bare outline with some details in between. By faith, is a glorious mystery. I want to discover this mystery in the life to come. I want to know more next time, not now. I want to know, I want to hear from God. I want him to teach me directly what this is all, the doctrines is all about. Or I may have no time, there's no such thing as time. My life, in the life of day after, will be praising the Lord all day. Oh, no, no, no day, also, no night, no day. All through all eternity. So, But God's commands remain the same. Though we may see this doctrine darkly, we have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We have to preach the gospel to every nation and we have to call out to the unbelieving world to faith and repentance. That remains our job. That remains the same. It is quite a surprise. No, actually it's a shock. To read that the people of God doubted his love, doubted God's love, doubted his election in verse 2. This is the first where God, you where God loved us. When the Lord has shown great love, mercy, and grace to the returned exiles for the last hundred years. You see, they have managed to rebuild the temple and now also the wall of Jerusalem. The Lord has protected them from their enemies, near and far, within and without. This was in great contrast to their kinsmen, Esau being their kinsmen, the Indomites being the descendants of Esau. They have lost everything and can, could not rebuild their lives after the conquest by the Persian. In fact, they would soon be driven from their homeland into the Negev in the southern wilderness of Judah. The people of God, their doubt for God's love is dangerous. They are treading on danger ground. It is often just a step away from leaving and spurning the very love of God. When you doubt the Lord's goodness, when you doubt the Lord's love for your life, for you, it is often just a step away from leaving and spurning the love of God. The church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 is a church full of faith and service for the Lord but they have left their first love. 
the church of Thyatira is a church known for love, faith, service, and patience, endurance. But they are spurning the love of God for the love of Jezebel in their midst. And it is real. It is something very real. Not only in our churches, but also in our lives. Our doubt for God's love and are prone to wander away from God's love and finally to spurn God's love for something else, for something more tangible maybe, for something more promising maybe in this life. It is, already, is it already happening to us, to you? And let us keep ourselves and rest in God's sovereign and electing love. Also, doubting God's love is the most hideous crime and is the mother of all sins. It will be manifested itself. It will manifest itself in many ways. Again, God willing, we shall investigate some of the manifestation of a doubtful heart for God's love in our future sermons. Now, what shall we say to all these things? In other words, in conclusion, what shall we say? Number one, when the word of God speaks to your heart, speaks to your sin, be like the boy king, Josiah. You turn with me to Second Chronicles, chapter 34. Verses 26 to 28, I shall read to you. Second Chronicles, chapter 34, verses 26 to 28. And I shall read. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall, thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants. And you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place and inhabitants. And they brought bad word to the king. Remember, the law of God was discovered among the debris in the temple. And the boy King Josiah got the priest to read to him the law of the Lord. Henry realized that they have sinned against the Lord according to his word. Now to seek for further clarification, they bring the word to a prophetess in Jerusalem to interpret and to explain the word of God to them more. And after giving the explanation of the word, God says through the prophetess,
in verse 27 that Josiah's heart was tender and he humbled himself before the Lord. This is Josiah's attitude when he received God's word. Not the, not the attitude of the people of God of old in Malachi's day where they shout, Where God? Josiah said, Yes, I have sinned against the Lord. I want to know how, how can I come back to the Lord. This is the attitude that we should cultivate in our lives when the will of God speaks to our heart regarding our sins, regarding our failings. We, and the passage mentioned two times the word humbled. He humbled and he humbled. And our tender heart for the will of God. Humility and tenderness of heart are really prerequisite when we come before the will of God. You who claim to be a Bible student, if this attitude is missing from your life, go back again to the very basic. Tenderness of heart and humility of mind when we come before the will of God. And the word of God will speak to us, sometimes very painful to know, but this is where the will of God hurts, but the will of God also heals us when we return to Him. As we have seen in this scripture, Josiah will be spared from the disaster that comes upon him because he is humble and he is tender to the word of God. Secondly, instead of doubting, instead of questioning the doctrine of election and reprobation and other associated doctrines, let us make our calling, our election sure. We turn with me again to another scripture, 2 Peter 1.10. Peter 1.10 and I shall read to you. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. See, the scripture never, never once called us to question or to doubt God's election and reprobation. We are always told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And here, Peter, Apostle Peter, exhorts us to confirm our calling and election. And he said, if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Now, what are these qualities? These qualities can be found in verse 5 to verse 9 of First Peter chapter, 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 5 says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Yes, you say you believe in God. Praise the Lord. No, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And with virtue, knowledge, and with knowledge, self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. A handful of things take a more than a lifetime to add on to our faith. Such qualities, and by practicing all these things, in a way, yes, we can confirm our calling, our election in the Lord. If you are a non-believer, we cannot pretend to be virtuous all the way, all the while. 
You are unbeliever, you cannot pretend to be steadfast all the while or loving all the while. You will fall. You will stop your pretense soon. But if you practice all these qualities in your Christian life, yes, there is this calling, this instruction to make to confirm our calling by being fruitful in our Christian character before the Lord. And lastly, do not doubt the love of God. God is committed to us with an everlasting covenant. Rather than doubting, rather than leaving and even spurning the love of God, let us abide in His love. Turn with me lastly to John 15. This is the real Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer on the upper room. John 15, verses 9 to 11. And I shall read to you. Verse 9 of John 15. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. It is a Christ commitment to His people. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Abide in God's love. Abide in Christ's love. Abide is not just touch and go. When you abide, you linger on. You rest upon, you linger on. You go back again and again. No, you don't want to leave the God who loves you. You don't want to leave the Christ who loves you. He loves you with everlasting love. You never want to leave Christ's love if you are abiding in Christ. It's too precious to give up. It's too precious to let go. For Christ had died on the cross in our place. He had paid for the full penalty of our sins. Such great love He has for us. We want to leave the God you love. We want to leave the person you love. No, we will never want to. We will cling on, lean on, abide in. And one way to show our Abiding in God's love and in Christ's love is to do His commandments. The full circle again. We have to prove our love, our abiding in Christ with, our, with obeying His word and doing His will. This is the Lord's message.